Good evening. This is a, a kind of a different uh, perspective for me. Yes, I've been up here to lead singing, but uh, different atmosphere somehow when you're actually doing the preaching. But uh, it is so comforting to know that every single person in here is praying for me, and I have the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling me to strengthen me. So thank you for that. Uh, tonight, we're going to be taking a look in the Old Testament at the book of Joshua. But before we do that, I'd like to uh, just take a moment to pray. Father, we are indeed thankful for the opportunity to come together to look into your word. We thank you for your word, for that which you have given to us to tell us about yourself, to tell us who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you want us to know you. We thank you, Lord, for what you've told us about the, the, the people of Israel, the, about your creation, about your law, about how to live, even in the Old Testament, the lessons that we learn there. Pray that you would use this time profitably, that you would uh, use me according to your will to, to accomplish that which you would have done tonight. We'll give you all the praise and the honor for it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the book of Joshua it may take a minute or three before we actually get into it, but uh, so we're going to have some introduction first. Uh, this is the first of what is traditionally known as the historical books of the Old Testament. Both tradition and internal evidence in the book tell us that Joshua himself wrote the book that bears his name. He was obviously an eyewitness to the events described and would be in the most logical position to document them under the inspired direction of the Holy Spirit. Another name for this book could be Conquest, because it really tells the story of the process the nation of Israel went through while occupying Canaan, the land of promise, in obedience to the command of God as given through Moses in fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham. While this is a book of history, we need to keep in mind that it's the history of God's people, written by God himself through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and according to 2 Timothy 3.16, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It is scripture. It might be helpful if we look at the book of Joshua as prophecy, using the de definition of forth-telling, not foretelling, uh, we, sh we should read Joshua for the life truths that it has for us, rather than simply as a dry history narrative. We need to know as much as we can about all of God's word, because it is one unified message from beginning to end. There's a lot we can learn about growing in Christ-likeness by studying Joshua and the entire Old Testament. The book of Joshua itself can be divided into four major sections. Chapters 1 through 5 present the preparation for passing into the promised land. Chapters 6 through 12 communicate the conquest of the country. 13 through 22 detail the division of the land. And the final two chapters impart Joshua's instructions for maintaining the integrity of the nation of Israel. As I said, before we get into the text itself, I think a brief background examination of the life of Joshua is worthy of our time and attention. The name Joshua itself means 
Jehovah saves, or the Lord is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. The New Testament name corresponding to Joshua is Jesus. Joshua's father was a man named Nun. He was a descendant of Joseph through his son Ephraim. Joshua was born in Egypt while the nation of Israel was in bondage to Pharaoh, so he was born a slave. The first time we see Joshua mentioned by name in Scripture is in the book of Exodus, chapter 17. We're not going to turn there, but uh, we're going to look at several references to Joshua here in the, in the Pentateuch. Uh, but uh, first mention in uh, chapter 17 of Exodus, when with no previous introduction, Moses sends him out to lead the fight against the Amalekites at Rephidim. Just to remind you, this was the battle when Moses got assistance from Aaron and Hur to keep his hands raised. And uh, while he's kept his hands raised, they had uh, success in the battle. Verse 13 of that chapter, Exodus 17, tells us, So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So our first look at Joshua would suggest that, given his success in this battle, he probably has a promising future as a military commander. Of course, this uh, is uh, played out through the rest of his career, especially uh, in the book of Joshua, as recorded in Scripture. Some commentators uh, that I read uh, suggested that Joshua may have been drafted, conscripted, I can't say it, drafted into the Egyptian army as a slave and may have gotten some military training or experience there, but there's nothing in Scripture that would indicate that. Uh, It seems more reasonable to, to, to say that God prepared Joshua specifically for his tasks and blessed him with military skill and leadership ability. That becomes clearly evident the more we read about him in the book of Joshua itself. After the battle with Amalek, we next see Joshua in Exodus chapter 24, accompanying Moses to Mount Sinai when Moses was receiving the first set of stone tablets containing the law of God, the Ten Commandments. The Bible says the elders of the tribes approached the mountain, but Moses took only Joshua up the mountain to serve as his servant, as his assistant there. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God himself. So Joshua would have been left alone during that time at a place lower down on the mountain. This is a great opportunity for him to test his faith, to exercise his patience, and to build his character. But it was during this time, of course, when the children of Israel got tired of Moses' continued absence and convinced themselves that he wasn't coming back. They said... As for this Moses, we, don't know, we do not know what has become of him. So they rebelled. They convinced Aaron, Moses' brother, to make a golden calf for them to worship. Their riotous, unrighteous behavior, as Moses and Joshua were coming down the mountain, Joshua described it as the sound of war in the camp. And that's in Exodus 32 and verse 17. It's not hard to see where Joshua's instinct and training led him. Sounds like a battle. But unfortunately, as we know, the Israelites were only engaged in pagan-like worship of this golden calf. Joshua, the man, is probably best known prior to his activities in the book that bears his name as one of the scouts, or spies, if you will, commissioned by Moses to investigate the land of Canaan as detailed in Numbers, chapters 13 and 14. In the list of spies given in this passage, Joshua is referred to as Hoshea, so the son of Nun. 
But at the end of that very list, in Numbers 13 and 13, we're told that Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. So, in the best traditions of Abram and Jacob, his name was changed from Hosea, which means salvation, to Joshua, or Jehovah is our salvation. We've already mentioned that. Now, the people of uh, Israel had left Egypt barely more than a year prior to this occasion, and most of that time was spent in the vicinity of Mount Sinai while God was revealing the law. They had by now moved from there to the wilderness of Paran, where the 12 spies were sent from to get a sneak preview of what the promised land was like. As you probably remember, the report considering the goodness and fruitfulness of the land itself was unanimous, a land flowing with milk and honey and exceedingly fertile. Joshua and Caleb, one of the other spies, encouraged the people to take immediate possession, confident that God would indeed keep his promise, prepare the way for them, and ensure their success in conquering the people, the land of Canaan. But the other ten spies had more fear of man than they had fear of God, and they were more convincing in communicating their fear of the size of the people they encountered. They said, these inhabitants are too big, they're too strong. We're like grasshoppers in their very sight compared to these guys. The main group of the people of the Israel listened to the naysayers, and they refused to enter the land. They were ready to go back to Egypt. Of course, this, as we know, is when God told them that because of their disobedience, their rebellion, their lack of faith, that nobody older than 20 years old, 20 years of age, would be allowed to enter the promised land. And this effectively started the 40 years of wandering for the children of Israel. But this episode also gives us clear evidence of Joshua's spiritual maturity and his level of personal trust in God. He and Caleb, along with Moses and Aaron, were begging the people in Numbers 14 and verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. He had confidence that they could defeat the inhabitants of the land, regardless of how big or strong they might be. He was obedient and faithful to God, a character trait we see over and over again in Joshua's life. This faithfulness and obedience were why God identified Joshua and Caleb as the only two individuals of their generation who would be allowed to enter the land of Canaan. After 40 years of wandering, Moses was getting old. And although we're told in Deuteronomy 34 and verse 7 that his eye was not dim nor his vigor abated, he knew it was time for God to appoint a successor for him. His disobedience at the waters of Meribah, where he struck the rock instead of speaking to it, as God had instructed him to give the people water, this disobedience disqualified him from leading the nation into the promised land. Given Joshua's experience as Moses' assistant, at the giving of the law and throughout the 40 years of wandering, it's not hard to see why God chose Joshua to be Moses' successor. It, uh, that account is in Numbers chapter, tw- uh, chapter 27, verses 15 through 23. The last two verses of that package, passage tell us, Moses did just as the Lord commanded him, and he took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. So Joshua 
was God's hand-appointed hand pointed successor for Moses. While Joshua's experience, faithfulness, and obedience to God will be critical in leading the people of Israel into the promised land, only his identification by God himself ensured his success. The book of Deuteronomy has a few more references to Joshua, especially toward the end when Moses is, Moses is effectively passing the mantle of responsibility to Joshua. I'd like to read Deuteronomy 31, verses 7 and 8. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Verse 23, also of Deuteronomy 31. Then he commissioned Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the sons of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. Finally, at the very end of Deuteronomy, chapter 34 and verse 9, we read, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So we see that that Joshua has been prepared and equipped by God to assume the leadership role filled by Moses for the last 40 years, even though he had been working alongside Moses Moses as his assistant for 40 years, those are still big shoes to fill. Testimony about Moses in Deuteronomy 34 says, Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. When you look at the life of Moses, you can't help but praise God for raising up a true hero of the faith. Hebrews 11, the Faith Hall of Fame, gives Moses six verses, more than any other person mentioned in that chapter. Joshua wouldn't have been human if he hadn't been at least a little bit doubtful about his abilities to take over. Kind of a tough act to follow, if you know what I mean. But as we've already seen, Joshua also had the advantage of knowing with certainty that God had chosen him for this task. And as we already read in Deuteronomy 31.23, it was God himself who commissioned Joshua and assured him that he would be with him. It's got to raise the confidence level a little bit. So that's the back, some background on the person of who Joshua was. Now let's dive into the book itself. We're going to start Joshua chapter 1. We're going to read the first nine verses. I'll be reading out of the New American Standard. Joshua 1 and verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you, All the days of your life, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. 
I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In the, in the unlikely event that you overlook the obvious, the theme of this section can easily be summarized in four words. Be strong and courageous. We, we see in these verses the ultimate official commissioning of Joshua. God is speaking directly to Joshua here in verses 2 through 9. Take a look at verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord, Yahweh, spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, we have the voice of God himself quoted here. The very first word in the book, now, is interesting because it really means and. So it indicates a continuation of the thoughts contained in the preceding book of Deuteronomy. Obviously, Moses wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. But just as obviously, Moses could not have written the final chapter, verse 34, because it describes his death. Uh, Joshua is likely uh, the author of chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, so it's not unreasonable to conclude that the book that he wrote, the book of Joshua that bears his name, is a logical continuation of the overarching theme of Moses' writings. God's identification, establishment, expansion, preservation, and protection of his chosen people, the nation of Israel. From Genesis to Deuteronomy, from Adam through Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then to Moses, God's sovereign purpose is clearly evident at every step. The conquest of the land of promise is the next logical step in that purpose. So the book of Joshua begins with a conjunction, the word and. Now, and, after the death of Moses, this resets the stage we have here. The people of Israel are camped on the east side of the Jordan in the plains of Moab, Moses is dead, and they're probably wondering what their next step is. John Calvin, in his commentary on Joshua, said, While men are cut off by death and fail in the middle of their career, the faithfulness of God never fails. On the death of Moses, a sad change seemed impending. The people were left like a body with its head cut off. While thus in danger of dispersion, not only did the truth of God prove itself to be immortal, but it was shown in the, in the person, person of Joshua as in a bright mirror that when God takes away those whom he has adorned with special gifts, he has others in readiness to supply their place, and that though he is pleased for a time to give excellent gifts to some, his mighty power is not tied down to them, but he is able, as often seems good to him, to find fit successors, nay, to raise up from the very stones persons qualified to perform illustrious deeds, end quote. 
The people already knew that Joshua had been selected by God for the leadership Moses after Moses, uh, leadership role after Moses. And the very first thing God tells Joshua to do, verse 2, arise, get up. It's not vacation time, not even a short break for rest and recuperation. God has spent 40 years preparing his people for what's going to happen next. All the rebellious generation has died off. Moses is gone as well, so it's time to get to it. Verse 2, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all the people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. This is the direct command of God and a reminder that the territory they're about to enter is a gift of God, a fulfillment of his promise to the patriarchs, specifically to Abraham. We actually looked at this in Sunday school this morning uh, in Genesis 12:7. After Abram had left Ur of the Chaldees, passed through Haran, and entered the land of Canaan as a sojourner and nomad, God told him, Genesis 12:7, to your descendants I will give this land. He elaborated on, the, on this promise in Genesis 13, 14 and 15. After Lot went away, the Lord said to Abram, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. In Genesis 15, we saw the institution of the unilateral covenant that God made with Abram. It took some 600 plus years of adversity, bondage in, bondage in Egypt, and wandering in the wilderness. But the nation of Israel is on the verge of seeing the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Verses 3 and 4 of Joshua 1 describe the general boundaries of the land they're entering. Wherever your foot treads is yours. This is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 11 and verse 24, where God told Moses the same thing. From the wilderness and Lebanon to the river Euphrates to the western sea, the Mediterranean. This was the land God had prepared for them and promised to give them. Later in the book of Joshua, there's a much more detailed account of the exact geographical borders of the land and division among the various tribes. One aside here, uh, just an observation, at no time in history has the physical boundary of either the kingdom or the nation of Israel extended as far to the northeast as the river Euphrates. But in multiple places, Genesis 15, 18, Exodus 23, 31, Deuteronomy 11, 24, this verse here, uh, verse 4, the same promise is made. Their territory would extend to the great river, the river Euphrates. So did God forget his promise? By no means. The only thing this indicates is that their territory has not been extended that far north yet. God sets his own timeline and if he sees fit to, exa- to expand Israel's boundaries in this age or in the age to come in the millennial kingdom, we can rest assured that he will keep his promise. Moving on to verse 5, this is a direct promise to Joshua himself. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. God promised to give him success over his enemies in every battle. God promised to be with him throughout his life, just as he was with Moses. Joshua had the promise of eternal security, straight from God himself. We have the same thing, don't we? 
Hebrews 13 and verse 5 contains a direct quote of this verse. I'm going to read verses 5 and 6 of Hebrews 13. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? The context there in in Hebrews is more along the lines of directions to believers, but it's also a promise to each and every one of us in the encouragement that with him as our helper, we have no reason to fear. Remember Romans 8.31, if, since, God is for us, who is against us? And Jesus promised us in Matthew 28.20, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God will never forsake those who are his. Verse 6 has another command. Be strong and courageous. This is the first of three times in this section where God makes this command to Joshua. Military, military campaigns are not for the faint of heart. Be strong, the Hebrew there, means to fasten upon or seize, get a grip. Be courageous. In the Hebrew, this means this is a command to be physically and mentally alert. 1 Corinthians 16.13 is the New Testament adaptation of this verse. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. That's the command for us as believers, just like God commanded Joshua. And then God tells him why he needed that strong grip, that alertness, because he was going to lead the people in taking possession of the land that God had promised to the patriarchs, as we've already seen. Verse 7, God tells Joshua the same thing again with an intensifying modifier thrown in for good measure. Be strong and very courageous. But then he tells him how to get that strength, how to get that courage. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. This is clear, distinct proof that God considered the writings of Moses to be scripture, his very word. The command, be careful, in the King James it says, observe. The Hebrew word means hedge about, guard, protect. God is telling Joshua that being strong and courageous requires careful consideration and protection of his holy word. Take care of this book. It will take care of you. Then God gets even more specific. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This echoes the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 5 and verse 32, after the restatement of the Ten Commandments, for the benefit of the generations, generation that literally grew up in the wilderness, God, through Moses, tells them the importance, of, the importance of obeying the commandments of God without deviating one way or the other. Deuteronomy 5.32, So you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now, we know that as humans, we will sin, but the commandments of God are still firm, and he calls all his people to obey. Now, the end of Joshua 1 and verse 7 also contains a word of encouragement for Joshua, that obeying the law will bring him success. The idea here is not just referring to military victory, although Joshua would certainly have that. The Hebrew word here for success, translated prosper in the King James, means to be circumspect, intelligent, to act wisely. God equates success with wisdom, 
That's a lesson we can all, we should all remember. The world's definition of success, promotions at work, gaining wealth, accumulating more stuff, even victory on the battlefield, does not necessarily match God's definition. Without God's wisdom, any apparent success is futile, empty, grasping at the wind. It's a lesson Solomon learned through exhaustive and sometimes bitter experience. He boils it down in Ecclesiastes 12 and 13. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. Obedience to the commands of God is true wisdom and true success. Which brings us to verse 8, Joshua 1. This is a verse I memorized in Sunday school once upon a time, a long time ago, as I'm sure many of you did as well. It's a verse absolutely worth committing to memory. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. And in verse 7, God told Joshua to keep the law, to obey it. Now in verse 8, he tells him to keep it in his mouth. He's supposed to read it and reread it and then read it some more. Then after he's done reading it, meditate on it. Think about it. Ponder it. Speak it to himself. God wants Joshua to know his word. The psalmist describes the blessed man in Psalm 1, verse 2, as one who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates in his law day and night. To meditate on something means you know it. You're going to have to memorize it. That's why this verse is one that Sunday school teachers have been assigning for memorization probably for as long as there have been Sunday school teachers. God wants his people to know his word and to think about it all the time, day and night. That's pretty comprehensive. doesn't leave much time to not be meditating on his word. Lots of people in every generation have pushed back on this command, saying things like, well, Lord, you know how busy I am. I really don't have time to meditate day and night. But I'll read a few verses, and I'll meditate on, on them tomorrow. I promise, maybe, if I have time. Guilty. I've been there. I think we all have. Thomas Watson, a Puritan preacher and author, said this about meditation. The reason we come away so cold from reading the word is because we do not warm ourselves at the fire of meditation. I think that says a lot. Do you think any of us are any busier than Joshua was at this point in history? He's getting ready to commence a major military campaign. He's dealing with countless details and leading a huge population of refugees. But you can be sure that Joshua took the time, however much time was necessary, to read and meditate on the book of the law. God's command to Joshua is echoed in the command Paul gives Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15. And the same command applies to us. Study to show yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. All God's children should have that desire to please him, to diligently study his word, all of it, for achieving the success of his wisdom. But just as important as knowing God's word is obeying God's word. So important that he repeats almost word for word what he said in verse 7. Be careful to do, to observe, all 
that is written in it. All our reading, our knowledge, meditation, all this misses the point completely if we ignore it, if we fail to follow its commands, its precepts, and instructions. When we delight in the word, like the blessed man in Psalm 1, we'll obey what it says. Those who are God's children will obey him. Quick rabbit trail here. I don't know how many of you have actually read the Pentateuch lately, but it's not exactly what most folks would call light reading. When Moses actually transcribed it, wrote it down, it was only one single narrative without the book divisions that we have in our Bible. So we have verse 8 where God says, this book of the law, not these books of the law. I think this means we were to consider this as a unit, this Pentateuch. Like I said, it's not light reading, but I would uh, suggest you get a blessing if you took it upon it yourself to really read these books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, to read them with purpose. As 21st century modern folks, I think we sometimes tend to neglect the book of Moses. But when you consider that this is literally the only scripture that Joshua had, it helps us realize just how important it is. Like I said, not particularly easy reading. It takes time. It takes intentionality. But we can understand it, and we can be blessed by it. And we can have prosperity and success, just like Joshua, with the help and guidance of the indwelling Holy Spirit when we take the time to read it and meditate on it. So much more we can say about meditation, but to put it simply, it's something we have to do according to God's command and for our own good. Moving on to verse 9, chapter 1. Have I not commanded you? God's still talking to Moses, still talking to Joshua, sorry. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, I wouldn't want you to get the idea that Joshua is hard of hearing and maybe a little dull. But when God says the same thing three times in four verses, I think it's pretty important. He's trying to get that message across. Be strong. Be courageous. Reminds me of what Bill's been preaching on in John 14 and 15 the last few weeks. How many times... Did Jesus tell his disciples to stop being fearful? The situation is not exactly the same, of course, but there are some parallels in our passage here. Moses has died, leaving Joshua alone and in charge of establishing a new nation. In the John passage, uh, for the disciples, Jesus is telling them he's about to depart, and they're going to be left in charge of establishing a new church. Either task, establishing a nation, establishing a church, would be daunting, to say the least. But Jesus told the disciples that he wouldn't leave them alone, just like God told Joshua that he would be with him wherever he went. God gives all of us tasks, some small, some apparently impossible, but he never expects us to undertake these tasks on our own. Sometimes we think we can handle them on our own, especially the ones we see as small. But I think we can all testify that we're only truly successful at accomplishing any task when we truly trust him, when we rely on him to direct us in and through those tasks. God told Joshua, don't tremble, don't be afraid or dismayed. It's the same thing Jesus told his disciples, the same thing Paul told the Philippians, chapter 4 and verse 6. Be anxious 
for nothing. Our fleshly weakness makes us susceptible to fear, worry, and anxiety for a variety of reasons. One of the biggest things we often worry about is uncertainty. It's a sadly human frailty that we're all prone to. But when we look at God's word, we're reminded time and again of the true certainty that he is always with us. We saw back in verse 5 where God told Joshua that he would be with him, that he would not fail him or forsake him. The same thing that Jesus told us in Matthew 28, 20, as we've already seen. I am with you always. These promises of God should remove any uncertainties from our lives. Yes, he has told us that we're going to face tribulation and persecution in this world, but he has also told us that he has overcome the world, John 16 and 33. It's a done deal. We who are his, chosen and called by God, sanctified and glorified through the work of Jesus Christ, have hope, according to Hebrews 6.19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. This is certainty beyond any shadow of a doubt. The hymnist says, Day by day, and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I have no cause for worry or for fear. Joshua was about to face challenges beyond imagination, but because he had God's assurance of victory, he trusted God. He had seen God keep his promises time after time, so he put his confidence in God's direct, specific promises to him, that he would prosper, that he would have good success. Now, looking at the second half of the first chapter, we're going to read verses 10 through 18, Joshua 1. Promise is not going to take as long as the first nine. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you are to cross this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it. To the Reubenites and to the Gadites and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God gives you rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But you shall cross before your brothers in battle array all your valiant warriors and shall help them until the Lord gives your brothers rest as he gives you, and they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to your own land and possess that which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. They answered Joshua, saying, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey your words in all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. In these verses, we see Joshua taking command of the army. Back in Numbers uh, 2651, the number of men able to go to war was calculated at over 600,000 warriors. Now, during the wilderness wanderings, 
part of their preparation, part of the preparation for the children of Israel was identifying, identifying capable leaders and assigning civic and military responsibilities to those leaders. Now, here in Joshua, we see him giving orders to prepare for movement. In accordance with God's instructions to him, in verse 2, now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, he directs the army to get ready to do exactly that. He does give them three days to make necessary preparations because he's still waiting for his spies to come back from Jericho. We'll see more details about that when we look at chapter 2 in God's timing. Not tonight. But it seems apparent that Joshua was not hesitant at all about obeying the Lord's command. Even so, three days is not a lot of time to get an army of 600,000 soldiers ready to move. But we see in verse 11 Joshua's confidence that their mission would end in success, the fulfillment of God's intentions, the possession of the land God was giving his people Israel. Verses 12 and following are specific instructions to the families of Reuben and Gad and part of Manasseh's family. Back in Numbers chapter 32, they had asked Moses to be allowed to occupy the territory east of the Jordan River because they had huge herds of livestock and they already knew that land, the land there was suitable for their needs. Moses, when they made this request, got a little hot at first because he thought they were trying to get out of helping the rest of the nation with their military endeavors. Their request reminded Moses of their father's refusal to enter the land 40 years earlier, and it was not a pleasant, pleasant memory for Moses. That was the cause of the 40 years of wandering. But these younger generation tribal leaders assured Moses that they would fully support the conquest, that their warriors would indeed participate in the con conquest and the military campaign and support their brothers as long as necessary. Numbers 32.27 tells us, your servants, everyone who is armed for war, will cross over in the presence of the Lord to battle. Now Moses did caution Joshua and the other leaders that if the Gadites, Reubenites, and half-tribe of Manasseh broke their promise, then they wouldn't be obligated to let them stay on the east side of the Jordan. But as we see here in Joshua 1.12 and following, when Joshua confronts them regarding their commitment, they manned right up. Verse 16 We'll do everything you tell us, and we'll go wherever you send us. Now, verse 17 might sound a little disingenuous, at least at first. Our usual image of the children of Israel during the Exodus is that they were not exactly known for their full obedience to Moses, as they claim here, just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. But we have to remember that this is a new generation, that they had observed the price their parents paid for their disobedience, so I think we can take their statement here at face value. I'm not saying that they were perfect. They griped and complained a little bit too. But uh, they understood what it meant to uh, have that confidence. They expressed that confidence in Moses' leadership. And here they had that expectation that God would do for Joshua what he did done for Moses. Then they go even farther, telling him that disobedience of Joshua's orders would be, would be punishable by death. Of course, during wartime, military discipline is critical. And when we get to chapter 7 of Joshua, we'll see a vivid illustration of this exact situation when Achan and his family are executed because of his disobedience. The tribal leaders finish their dialogue with, one, with another encouragement to Joshua to be strong and courageous, this echoing God's thrice-repeated command earlier in the chapter, be strong and courageous. Joshua, 
born a slave in Egypt, would become a conqueror in Canaan. He served his apprenticeship as personal attendant to Moses, obtained military and leadership experience during the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings, and here, in chapter 1 of the book bearing his name, begins his career as Moses' successor. His outstanding qualities are obedient faith, courage, and dedication to God and his word. We can learn from Joshua's example and be encouraged to follow God in obedience, to know his word, to meditate on it, to trust him to provide all we need. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for your word, for the book of Joshua, for the encouragement that it has for us, for the challenge it has for us, the exhortation to know your word, to follow your word, to meditate on it. We thank you that you've given us the example of your servant Joshua, for the example of your servant Moses, the faith that they had, the trust they had in you. We thank you, Lord, that we see their faults on occasion as well, that they indeed uh, were men, human, but they knew what it, mean, what it meant to trust you, to take confidence in you, to put their faith in you. Pray that you would help us to remember these things when we are faced with discouragement, adversity, affliction. Help us to remember, Lord, that we have nothing to fear that you have promised to be with us, to never forsake us. We thank you for it. We love you for it. We give you the praise and honor and glory. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.